Welcome to the Chinese Canadian Museums podcast, The School Room. I'm your host, Melissa Lee, CEO of the museum. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are discussing stories related to the Newfoundland Chinese Canadian community. So we're so thrilled to welcome William Ping on our podcast. William is a journalist for the CBC Newfoundland Labrador Bureau in St. John's and an up-and-coming writer whose debut novel, Hollow Bamboo, was published just in February 2023. Hi, William. Welcome to our show. Hi. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. So, you know, just talking a little bit more about this lineage between you and the generations that came before you, Chinese Canadians, I understand you're actually named after your grandfather, William Sito Ping, who first came to Newfoundland in the 1930s. Could you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, so he first came to Newfoundland in 1931, and, you know, it wasn't something he really wanted to do. You know, back in China, he already had a wife and a child, and he sort of got forced to come to Newfoundland by his family. His uncle was already in St. John's, and... My grandfather's grandmother came up with this idea that she wanted to see the uncle again before she passed away. So she came up with the idea that the uncle would come back to China for a year while my grandfather would go to Newfoundland and take his place for a year. However, once my grandfather got to Newfoundland, the situation wasn't quite what he expected it to be. You know, he thought his uncle owned a laundry, but his uncle had lost at gambling and there was all these debts that he inherited and the head tax debt at that time. and. Uh, he ended up kind of getting stuck in Newfoundland after that, and the uncle never came back to replace him. So are these stories that you heard from your own parents or actually from your grandfather himself? In terms of how I heard the stories, I didn't really hear them directly from my grandfather himself, not in the sense of him telling them to me. He passed away when I was three years old. And as you mentioned, I have the same name as him. And so for a lot of my life, I was sort of living in that legacy and I didn't really know him that well. So when I sat down to write this book, that was sort of my goal was, you know, let's get all the family stories, let's get all the resources, let's do all the research we can to try to paint a picture of this man that I didn't know very well, but he was really well respected here in the St. John's community. Um, You know, he was a business leader and a community leader. And even to this day, you know, I still hear people talk about you know, how much respect they had for him when he was around. So in terms of how I heard the stories, a lot of it was family interviews, you know, asking my dad about, you know, different aspects of the past and what he had heard and asking my aunts and uncles for stories. And, you know, eventually I had this whole collection of anecdotes. I was in luck too, because there's also a documentary film about my grandfather called The Last Chinese Laundry. And in that he tells the story of his life in his own words and Uh, That was a great resource. You know, I read a lot of contemporaneous newspapers from the 1930s to get a sense of how the public was reacting. Various historical studies at the university here in Newfoundland, at Memorial University. And, you know, one phenomenal resource that I got pretty late in the process, it's like the most insane coincidence. So I work at CBC, as you mentioned, I work on the radio. You know, I was writing this book and the book was sold. We were editing it still. But one day on the radio, a listener called in and said they wanted to speak to me. And so, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And so I called back and it was a woman who was a folklore student at the university here in Newfoundland in the 70s. And she had worked with my grandfather as he was writing a memoir in Cantonese. 
And we always knew that he was writing this memoir, but we never had, you know, the actual paper of it. And so she reached out and she said, you know, like, I want to give you the memoir. I have the translated pages into English already. And so pretty late in the process, I got this sort of unfinished memoir that he was working on. And I was able to get a lot of, you know, his life story in his words into the book. So that was a really fantastic resource. At what point did you decide instead of a memoir or nonfiction that you would then turn it into like a, a fictional book? I think ultimately, you know, I did like a full year of research and I had, you know, this gigantic PDF document with all these notes. And, you know, ultimately I came to the realization that it didn't really matter how much research I did. I'm never going to quite get to that truth of everything. You know, there was still so much that I didn't know. And so that was one of the main reasons why I went the route of the novel. And there is sort of a magical realism aspect to it with ghosts and time travel and I brought in a lot of those elements to underscore that, you know, an element of fiction was necessary. You know, don't take everything that I've written as historical fact, even though much of it is true. But, you know, I wanted to bring in those sort of overtly fictional elements to highlight sort of my lack of knowledge, really. And can you describe a little bit for our listeners the magical realism genre? I mean, not in detail, but just a little bit in the way that you have used it uh, in this novel and maybe even some influences that you were drawing from, some authors that you also enjoyed that are magical realists. Well, I'll tell you like the synopsis of it. So the book opens and there's a fictional version of myself as the narrator. And through, you know, quite the turn of events, I accidentally summon a ghost who takes me back in time to see how my grandfather's life plays out. And it's sort of a riff on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You know, it's sort of this ghost of Christmas past taking me back to see how, you know, how did my life come to exist, really? You know, how did my grandfather's life unfold and how did we end up here? In terms of influences I had, I would say the big one was The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, which uses magical realism to tell the story of American slavery. And one thing that was particularly moving in Colson Whitehead's book and influential for me was the way that he used these sort of elements of magic and sort of unreal things to highlight the absolute depravity of the slavery system. You know, the magical elements didn't bring lightness to the narrative insofar as they really underscored just how bad things really were. And so that was a huge influence for me in writing this. You know, I did want to bring sort of a lighter touch to it because there is, you know, a lot of darker moments. But I also wanted to be able to use that magic to really underscore how bad things really were. So that's really fascinating. And I think it's a really important tool in magical realism fiction where there is a kind of separation from the brutalness of reality. And as you say, moving into fantasy makes it a lighter touch. But it also allows people to access it in a different way. It's really part of perhaps why this novel has been so popular, uh, this debut novel that you've written this year. I'm wondering also, while you were doing your research, did you have other influences that were Chinese-Canadian or Chinese-American writers that you looked at um, in that particular genre? Because I'm also thinking of like Maxine Hong Kingston, because that novel was also magical realist. But were there others that you were thinking of? 
for sure. I mean, there was so many different influences and the book sort of takes so many different turns. You know, we start a magical realism and it becomes historical fiction. And, you know, there's almost like a crime novel aspect to parts of it. In terms of influences, one of the big ones I would say was Lindsay Wong and her memoir, The Woo Woo, and the way that she wrote of her family there and used humor and, you know, you know, pretty heavy subject matter, but still injecting it with this kind of dark humor throughout. That was one of the big influences for me. Madeleine Tien, of course, was a big influence just in sort of, you know, writing this sort of sweeping family narrative. I'd say those were the two big influences. Other names are escaping me at the moment. <laughs> no, that's great. And those are great, great novelists. I wanted to move on a little bit to food because that's always something that we talk about in Chinese Canadian culture and it kind of always gravitates to food and I understand that you're interested in food you're a foodie but so was your grandfather who owned his own restaurant and was remembered as a fantastic cook can you tell us a little bit about what you remember eating as a child from your family and other things that you enjoy eating in Newfoundland. In terms of food from my grandfather, I can remember like being very young and eating like rice and steamed broccoli that he had cooked for me. But I know in general, he really enjoyed, he didn't have a favorite dish to cook so much as he wanted to know what your favorite dish was. And then he would cook that. Like that was his favorite thing was to figure out what do you want? and to cook that. And he always had soup with all his meals. In terms of growing up, the type of food we were eating in the house was always sort of, you know, I'm mixed race. And it was sort of the food was mixed race as well. You know, we had the Chinese influence on my father's side, the Newfoundland influence on my mother's side. So, you know, things like salt cod fried rice and, you know, using these sort of Newfoundland ingredients and using the Asian techniques with them. And in terms of what foods I enjoy eating around the city, you know, there's so many fantastic restaurants in St. John's now. There's really been a culinary boom over the last decade or perhaps 15 years or so. And there's so many great restaurants here like Tier or Portage. And Portage has a similar sort of, you know, Asian Newfoundland influence to it. So there's a lot of great options around for sure here in St. John's. What's your favorite Chinese restaurant in St. John's? That would have to be, there's a little tiny place right around the corner from my house here. They don't even have seating. It's just a takeout counter. It's called Song He's Restaurant. Yeah, that's my favorite for sure. And that's been the go-to for the family for years, even when my grandfather was still alive. The same couple has been running that now since the 80s. They're always threatening to retire. They never do, you know, true classic Chinese Canadian takeout. Not quite authentic, but, you know, of the inauthentic variety. That's a classic here. What's your favorite thing to get there to eat? Your regular order? You know, I like the Meipao tofu. I like the, you know, I'll go for the lemon chicken. I know that's not quite classic, but, you know, get some spare ribs, get some beef and broccoli, you know, all the, all those classics. And have you noticed change in Chinese food or the way that it's evolved in the past 10 years or so? Not just Cantonese cuisine and maybe more other regional cuisines uh, from China. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, even just, you know, various Asian cuisines in general. I would hear so many stories from my family members about my grandfather and how he would send them on missions across the country to go get bottles of soy sauce and bring them back 
you know, because we didn't have those ingredients here for years. And I remember we had a new Costco open up a couple years ago and they were selling barrels of soy sauce. All my family members were like, oh my God, like he would have loved this. Like this would have been like the greatest day of his <laughs> life that he could buy a barrel of soy sauce. But yeah, I mean, within like the last 20 years or so, I would say a huge shift here in terms of ingredients available and in terms of restaurants that are open. You know, we have a dim sum restaurant here now, Gin Dragon, and that's really cool because we never had that here before. Or, you know, there's a Filipino restaurant called RJ Pinoy Yum. And, you know, that's really incredible too. And, you know, we have so many different cuisines popping up here now as the population becomes more diverse. You know, it's a really promising future and a great food scene as it is. to ask a little bit more about your grandfather who had a photo album that we understand was an in-progress Chinese business directory. Can you tell us more about this album and what kind of history of businesses were featured in it? Absolutely. You know, I found it in the basement one day and I was thinking, you know, what is this? So, you know, flipping through it, it was just pictures of Chinese restaurants. And, you know, I asked my dad about it and he was telling me that you know, this was my grandfather's project to sort of chronicle all of the Chinese restaurants in the province. And, you know, another writer actually that influenced the book was Anne Hui and her book Chop Suey Nation, which was this study of how, right, how Chinese food sort of spread across the country. And she comes to Newfoundland in that book. And, you know, I believe she writes about how sort of the restaurants would open in the next adjacent community to not have competition with the immigrants that were already in this community. And I think my grandfather's project was kind of a proto version of what she was doing in some ways, you know, tracking where did all the Chinese immigrants in Newfoundland end up and sort of taking a picture and documenting their business and, you know, creating this directory, as you said. And that was part of his project in creating the Chinese Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, which is still exists today, which is this sort of community group that aims to connect all of the Chinese immigrants across the province together. So your grandfather was running all these businesses and then also creating a Chinese business directory and yet also doing a memoir on the side as well as being a grandfather. So he really was just so curious and interested in so many different avenues of society. I mean, when you think back as to what kind of person he was, like, what is your strongest memory uh, characteristic that you think of when you think about him? I think for my own personal memory, you know, as I mentioned, my memories directly of him are limited. So my clearest memory of him is sitting on his lap and watching Wheel of Fortune on TV. In terms of family memories, you know, I, I think of him as very hardworking. You know, this was somebody who, when he came to Newfoundland, was in so much debt and had left his wife and child behind and was absolutely miserable. And he just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked until he sort of had economic freedom from all of these things that were oppressing him. You know, and that's how I remember him. That's how I think of him. That's my memory is just somebody who would work until he had sort of achieved equality in some ways. Thank you so much, William, for coming on our podcast and just sharing us a little bit about your family and your book. 
So for anyone interested in learning more about the Newfoundland Chinese head tax and the stories of those who lived it, please visit our feature exhibition here in the Chinese Canadian Museum, The Paper Trail to the 1923 Chinese Exclusion Act, on view at our Vancouver location in the historic Wingsang Building. Or please go and buy William's book, Hollow Bamboo, out in stores now everywhere uh, to learn more about the history of the Newfoundland Chinese Canadian community as well. Thanks so much, William, for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. We invite you all to reflect on the territories that you're on and the host nations. To learn more about the Chinese Canadian Museum and book tickets, visit us at ChineseCanadianMuseum.ca and follow us on Instagram at CCMuseumBC for updates. The Schoolroom is presented by the Chinese Canadian Museum, hosted by Dr. Melissa Carmen Lee, produced by Rosalie Gonawan, and advised by Sarah Ling and Catherine Clement. Production is supported by Noah Taylor and the Walrus Lab. The theme music and original audio was created by Joshua Young, and graphic design is by Studio Pian Pian He and Max Harvey. Stay tuned for next month's episode of The Schoolroom, available wherever you get your podcasts.